Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Andrew. If we have not had the chance to meet, it's great to have you with us. Uh, I don't know if you're here because you got dragged along to witness the, the beauty of what that just was, or if you're just coming in from outside and haven't been in church in a while. Uh, ha, ha, whatever reason brought you here, we're so glad that you're with us. And whether you are not sure what you believe or you're sure that you don't, we're glad that you're here, and we want to process the claims of Jesus with you and help you wrestle any way that we can. So thanks for being with us. Another thing I want to say is we often get asked why we do some of those liturgical prayer movements that we do, where there's some reciting of prayers uh, that happen, and some people say, is that like a denominational thing, or what, what's with that? For us, here's why we do it. Uh, we, we recognize that actually it's not a denominational thing. The church throughout history has had these prayers that they recite and pray together, these movements and the service as the church gathers that shape who we are to reform us into the way of Jesus. Uh, All week long, the world is shouting out to us to value certain things, to behave certain ways, to love certain things. And this is a chance where we get to be formed and reformed to look more like Jesus and to love Jesus more. So that's why we do it. And if you have questions about anything else, man, feel free to ask. We're we're really glad that you made it today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're five weeks into a new series on the gospel of Mark, and we haven't even got out of chapter 1. Today's the day we wrap up the chapter. So if you have a Bible, go there. I want to pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for today, and we thank you for these these babies that we just got to dedicate, their families. God, we pray that you would meet them with your love, and all those prayers that we're praying for them, we're, we're praying for us today, too, that we need to experience not just more knowledge about you, but we need to allow that truth to penetrate deep into our souls. So would you move, would you come, and would you shape us, would you form us, God? We want to, we want to love you more and encounter you more. So whatever it is that we're carrying in the room, Wherever we need you to meet us, we pray that you would meet us with your mercy and meet us with your grace. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to throw up a slide, see if you recognize this. Anyone recognize that? What's that from? Jack Bauer, the show 24, right? If you have never seen the show, just a quick confession, the old stuff 
it's one of my favorite shows of all time. Not the new stuff. That stuff's garbage. I'm saying like the, the early 2000s. Amazing. Kiefer Sutherland. This was one of the first shows that my wife and I binge watched. And if you don't know anything about the show, it's centered around Jack Bauer, who is a counter-terrorist agent who essentially uh, every episode is one hour of his life. And, and it just kind of chronicles all this crazy stuff that he experiences. And if you've ever watched the show, then you get to the end of it and you're like, dude, that guy has the worst life ever. I can't believe the amount of bad things that happen in one day of that guy's life. It's just insane. It's bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And that's all in a day's work for Jack Bauer. Love the show. And here's why I bring it up. Because what Mark is doing in this section of chapter one, from what we're looking at in verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 45, is one 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. And it's insane what Jesus encounters, what happens in his life. And this is essentially a microcosm of why Jesus came in the first place and what he's all about. And, and what you see is all these things unfolding in the life and ministry of Jesus that this author, uh, John Mark, wants you to kind of get a grid for what's happening in one day of his life is just a bigger picture of why he came. So in light of that, that's where we're headed is looking at this 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. As one commentator said it, an average day for Jesus. This is just an average day for the life of Jesus. Now, to fully understand what's happening in the text, I want to kind of have you reframe the way that you think of the world. I'm not sure your vision of the world, but one of the ways that Scripture wants to paint this world to us is this world functions as occupied territory for the enemy. I don't know if you were here last week. Last week, I ended the sermon with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time that he has ever written. And here's what he says. I want to circle back around to kind of help you frame up this passage. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So I don't know how you think of the world, but one of the ways to think of the world is as occupied territory for the enemy. That actually what has happened in the stories that God in Genesis created this world to function as his kingdom. He created this world to function as his reign and his rule over his people in his place. And what happened in chapter three is humanity threw off the reins of God. We actually decided to define what was good and evil for ourselves, what was right and wrong for ourselves. And when we made that decision to sin and rebel against God, we essentially handed the keys of this world over to the enemy. And we said, here, you run things. So what God intended to be a world of light and life and beauty and shalom has become, because of sin, occupied territory by the enemy where there's darkness and there's death and there's dysfunction. And this is not the way that God intended the world to be. Really, the whole story of the Old Testament is God promising to bring his kingdom back. And, and this is why it's so shocking that Mark opens up his gospel and he notices the, the first sermon that Jesus preaches. And it goes something like this. In Mark 1, verse 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and notice this, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, the rightful king has landed. 
And even though not everybody recognizes this king, I'm here, and not only am I here, but with the arrival of the king, there's also this arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, here's, here's a way to think of the gospel narratives, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're essentially a story about the clash of the kingdoms. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and these two kingdoms are clashing at every turn. Jesus is confronting and invading and fighting back and pushing back the darkness, and what we have in this passage is really just a, a microcosm of all the ways that Jesus does it. Three things that I want to point out to you for how Jesus is wanting us to see. Here's what his kingdom looks like when it comes to bear in this world. So with that background in mind, go to chapter one and let's look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. By the way, Capernaum functions as a a sort of home base for the ministry and mission of Jesus during his three years. He he was born in Nazareth, but then spent most of his ministry time kind of hanging out, probably living in the Apostle Peter's home as a base for mission and went out from there. So they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, the Sabbath for Jewish people was Saturday night, Friday night to Saturday night. So this would have been uh, Saturday morning. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is actually invading the darkness, but he does so through teaching. Now, this is really fascinating, isn't it? Because the synagogues in Jewish life held a prominent place. You had the temple that was in Jerusalem, but most Jewish people didn't live within the distance of traveling to the temple. It was a long journey, so they would only do that about once a year. But wherever there was a group of Jewish people, there would be a synagogue close by. They're scattered across the known world at the time, uh, in Rome and other places scattered around, not just in Israel. And so what would happen is every Saturday morning, the, the, the Jewish people would kind of flock to whatever synagogue was close to them. And the synagogue had four different rhythms or four different movements that would happen in their early Saturday morning service. The first was prayer. They would pray together. Then they would move into a time of reading scripture, similar to what we just did a second ago, where we stood, we read scripture together. Then they would move into a time of teaching and unpacking that passage from the text, which is what I'm doing now. And then they would end their service with a benediction, which is what we're going to do in just a little bit. It's fascinating that the early church actually modeled the way to do church off of these synagogue gatherings. Now, most synagogue gatherings didn't have a full-time pastor, if you will, or a rabbi, as they would call it, a teacher or a scribe. So what they would have is traveling rabbis or traveling scribes that would kind of enter into these synagogues and teach from occasion. They would take the scripture that was read, and they would unpack it. Now, the problem with the scribes is that over time, their teaching became really flat because all they would do is essentially comment on what another, fair, or what another uh, rabbi or another scribe had said. So their sermons would sound like this. Well, rabbi so-and-so says this about this text. And rabbi so-and-so says this about this text. And rabbi so-and-so says this about that text. And it was just very flat and very boring. They weren't ever able to say, and here's what I think about the text. Jesus shows up and he walks into the synagogue. And when Jesus would teach, he would often say a phrase like this. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but as the author of scripture, let me tell you what I meant when I said that. Like to hear Jesus teach the Bible, think about this, was to hear the author of scripture give you its truest meaning. 
It's the author saying, when I said this in Genesis, or when I was describing this in Leviticus, here's what I was talking about. Here's what I intended. Here's what I meant. So Jesus is taking a ton of authority, and nobody had ever seen any teaching like this. They keep saying, who is this? We're astonished. We're blown away at the power and authority with which he teaches. Now, I just want you to pause here for just a minute. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus who only spent three years doing ministry, spent a significant time teaching in synagogues or gathering crowds in the outdoor spaces and teaching. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus spends time teaching? Some might even say he's wasting time teaching. It's like, Jesus, you're only here once. Why don't you heal everybody that you can? Or why don't you cast out all these demons? But for whatever reason, a significant portion of his ministry was a teaching ministry. In fact, Mark uses the word to teach or teacher in reference to Jesus 34 times in his gospel alone. Friends, don't forget that Jesus was known to his disciples primarily and first and foremost as a rabbi. Now, here's why I bring that up. Because many of us who grew up in church, and I know that not all of us did, but many of us did, Many of us that grew up in church, where we often started the story was with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's good because that's the climactic event of the gospel. But what we forget is that Jesus spent three years prior to that, before his death, teaching people. And this is really significant because what we've developed in the West is a culture of being a Christian or being a quote-unquote follower of Jesus, but not actually being shaped and formed by the teaching ministry of Jesus. We claim his death, we claim his resurrection, but a lot of us haven't oriented our lives around the teaching of Jesus. And here's what's crazy. We live in a world that one of the ways you could describe it is that it's lost in darkness, Like, think about this. We live in the information age. Many people call the age that we live in the information age. Uh, There's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. It's fascinating to read. Neil Postman was essentially writing in the 80s, and he was warning about the dangers of television, which is hilarious to me, right? He's like, those TVs in the 80s, he's like, be very careful. And, And you read it, and it's almost a prophetically written book. If you think about social media, what he says is even more true today than it was in the 80s. And here's what he says about our information age. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. Google strategists will tell us that everything in the world that there is to know all the knowledge that exists in the world doubles every 12 hours. Think about that. Every 12 hours, everything that there is to know doubles. We are glutted with information. We are inundated with information. And yet, here's what's so sad and so fascinating is that our world is not getting brighter and more peaceful and more hope-filled. That feels like we're actually propelling further and faster towards the darkness. We have more confusion about our identity. We have more confusion about why we exist. We have more confusion about what it is to be human. We have more confusion about how to find the good life. And we've got all these things out there telling us how to find the good life. And yet it feels like all we've come up with is emptiness and darkness. And and there's something, true story, called the World Happiness Report. That's a real thing. And in the West, we we have been consistently tracking less and less happy with more and more information that we have. Friends, I think it's safe to say that what we need is a teacher. And not just any teacher, we need the author of life to tell us how to do this thing. 
We need Jesus to show up as the, the luminary. John 1 says that Jesus is the word who came to bring light and life to humanity. This is the word that we need. And it's not lost on us that Jesus spends so much of his earthly ministry walking around teaching because people don't know how to live. And he's saying, hey, here's how you do marriage. Here's how you do singleness. Here's how you engage your sexuality. Here's how you think about money and possessions. Here's how you think about the good life in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to the darkness and he's pushing it back and he's invading it with his teaching ministry. Friends, here's the pastoral burden that I have for you is that there's so much content out there There's so many voices. There's so many streams of advice that you can jump into and listen. And I just want to urge you, like, please, please, if you're a follower of Jesus, go to the source. The source is Jesus and his teachings. Go to the source. Like, don't be one of the scribes that knows what so-and-so says about the Bible or so-and-so says about that doctrine or so-and-so says about certain aspects of, of, of ethics in the kingdom of God. Know what Jesus said about those things. Go to the source. Podcasts are great. Good books are great. Sermons are great when they're good, which is hit or miss if you're a part of Frontline South, right? So those things are great, but go to the scriptures, right? You don't need a hot take for me. And by the way, I've got hot takes for days. I have opinions on everything. I have opinions on things I don't know anything about. You don't need my opinions. You don't need my hot takes. Go to Jesus and just read what he said and orient your life around his teachings. You don't know where to start. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that is the thing that Christians should build their lives on. Go to the source. So that's the first thing he does, is he's actually invading the darkness, but he does does so through teaching. How fascinating. Second thing I want you to see, he invades the darkness, not just through teaching, but through deliverance. Look at this in verse 23. And immediately... That's Mark's favorite word. He uses it over and over and over. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That's a demon. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This was thought in an ancient society. It was thought that if you named the name of your opponent, then you could somehow have authority over your opponent. So the demon cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us. That's more of a statement than it is a question. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they all questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Uh, The the, the reality of demonic warfare and oppression in the first century was overwhelming. Like there's, for for hundreds of years, even before Jesus entered the scene, people were getting ravaged by demonic spiritual warfare. And actually this deliverance style ministry was very common, very popular in Jesus' own day. They had all these different methods and mechanisms of trying to get demons to come out of people. Uh, There was an herb that they would find and they they would take the herb and make it into some sort of concoction and put it in front of the nose of the victim, hoping the demon would come out of people's noses. There was another method where they would use a bunch of incantations 
incantations and just try to, you know, f- uh, repeat phrases to get the demon to come out. Uh, there was one way where they would essentially waterboard the person, hoping that the demon like didn't like water and would come out. The, the, probably the most bizarre is they would take a, uh, a drill and drill through the person's temple trying to see that the demon would eventually come out. And many of those people that underwent that obviously did not survive. The ones that did would take the piece of the bone and wear it as a necklace and walk around saying, like, I've been delivered from this demon. So there's all these mechanisms, these ways that were very common in the first century to try to get demons to come out of them. Very, very few of them were ever any effective at all. And yet what Jesus does is basically in Greek say, shut up and come out. Like, it's very simple. Just shut up and come out. And I love that the demon asked the question, why are you here? Is it to destroy us? And he's really not even asking as much as he's recognizing, you're here to destroy us, aren't you? John, who is one of Jesus' first four disciples, we talked about him last week, summarizes the earthly ministry of Jesus like this in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was why? To destroy the works of God of the devil. Jesus is invading the darkness, and he's doing so through demonic deliverance. Now, here's what's difficult. I'm looking out at your faces, and I know our context, I know our culture, that in the West, we often have a theology of the demonic. We might believe it on a mental level, but we don't ever expect to see it. Or maybe we just kind of envision Satan as kind of the the boogeyman within Christianity, right? This little man who wears a red leotard that he got at some weird Halloween shop, and that's all he is. And so there's all these weird approaches to Satan and to the demonic. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, Screwtape Letters, says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think that if we are honest, if we could inject truth serum in each person in the room, most of us land in the camp of materialist more than we would want to believe. We might think, well, yeah, demonic warfare is real, but it's in places like Africa, or it's in places like India, or it's in places like Southeast Asia, but it's not in a place like the West. And I would just say that actually you need to rethink and reframe the way that you think of spiritual warfare in the West because it's as active here as it is in any other country on the planet, maybe in more sinister, subtle ways. So think of it this way. There's a difference between hard power and soft power. Hard power in military terms is when you send in the tanks, you send in the the airplanes to drop bombs, you send in the infantry. It's a full frontal assault on that country, right? Soft power is where you are stirring up disinformation campaigns. Soft power is where you're you're dropping propaganda secretly to kind of break down the culture at the edges. Soft power is often not coming in the front door, it's coming in the back door, it's hard to spot. And here's what I want you to realize about the West, is that the West is under the soft power of the enemy. 
There's all these false gospels out there, these false narratives of what the good life really is and how to live and what it means to be human, how to think of sexuality and how to think of possessions and money and all this stuff. There's all this, there's all this stuff out there. And friends, what I want you to realize is behind a lot of what we're seeing in our culture is the real energizing, influencing, demonic effect of Satan himself that's actually trying to get us to think about life and the good life in a way that's so counter to what Jesus is inviting us into that you and I are drinking from the water hole, don't realizing that it's actually been poisoned. This is what you and I are living in. Now, think about it. Where did this demon show up? It was in the synagogue, right? This is like within the people of God. Here's all these different ways of thinking about Jesus and Christianity. You don't have to have all the hard stuff. You can just take all the love and that's it. No, actually, here's what's happening. We have to be aware of sometimes the enemy comes with a full frontal assault with hard power, but often he comes at us with soft power. And what Jesus is doing through his ministry and even with his teaching, there's a connection here between his teaching ministry and his deliverance ministry. Jesus is actually bringing freedom to people who have been bought and caught into a whole other story. This is why Jesus is showing up. He's, he's coming to those lost in darkness under the influence of the devil, and he's saying, I came to destroy the works of the devil. So maybe you're here today, and you're wrestling with untold amounts of greed in your life. Or maybe you're wrestling with sexual addictions that you can't seem to get under control. Or maybe you're wrestling with wanting to be married so bad that you're making compromises in your life that you shouldn't. Or maybe wanting to walk away from your marriage because you're no longer happy the way that you have been told to define happiness. Listen, friends, God wants to break the power of the enemy off of your life today. This is why he came, right? The third and final thing I want you to see He's invading the darkness, not just through his teaching, not just through his deliverance, but he's invading the darkness through healing. Now, there's a lot we could say about healing in this passage. In verse 29, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Isn't it interesting to think about the apostle Peter being married and having a family? He's healing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever in verse 29. Verse 34, Jesus heals an entire village, an entire town. It says that All the sick were brought to him, and Jesus is healing these people in the town. It's crazy the amount of healings that Jesus performed in less than 24 hours. But here's the story that I want to end with. I want want you to see this. It's at the very end of Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice that the leper's question is not, can you do this? It's, do you want to do it? If you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy in the ancient world was the most feared disease that one could ever encounter. It's difficult to know exactly what it was because often what we envision as leprosy may or may not have been the case. There's like 72 different skin conditions that get classified under leprosy in the New Testament. But often what leprosy was, especially in its worst case scenario, was where your skin would develop such a bad condition that it would ooze and pus and rot. And eventually your fingers or parts of your hands or your nose, parts of your face would just fall off. And leprosy was eventually something that was uncurable, that would kill its victim, but it would kill the victim over years and years. It was a painful, horrible, horrible way to die. If you've ever been to a third world country and seen someone with leprosy, like it is a shocking thing to see. 
So here's the thing about leprosy. The condition, the sickness, is actually not the worst thing about it. In the first century, to be a leper meant that you were essentially labeled as unclean. Jewish law at the time had all of these restrictions around lepers so as to not spread leprosy to other people. So a leper could not enter into the town. A leper was not allowed to come into the village. They could not be living in the community. They actually had to live outside the city walls in leper colonies. And what had to happen is they would have to wear a certain outfit to let everyone know that they were a leper. They were not allowed within 50 feet of another human being. And any time they got around another person 50 feet away, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Like this is a horrible, horrible thing to have. New Testament scholar James Edwards says this, lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family, and fellowship and worshiping community. So notice this leper, with all of that background in mind, he makes his way to Jesus. And his question to Jesus is not, hey, do you have the power to do this? It's, will you? If you can, you can do it. Like, I know that you can pull this off, but would you want to do this for me? Now look at verse 41. Moved with pity. Some translations translate it as moved with intense anger. Not at the leper, not at the Jewish laws, but at the effect of sin and disease in God's good world. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I love that. Immediately the leprosy left him. There's actually a connection here that the author, John Mark, is trying to give us. Immediately the demon left the man by Jesus speaking a word. And in this story, immediately the leprosy left the man, just like the demon left the other guy. And here's what's fascinating, friends. We know from that story that Jesus could have just spoken the word, be healed, and the guy would have been healed. But what does Jesus choose to do? He reaches out and he touches the man. This man who may not have been touched for years, months, weeks, we don't know how long, the redemptive value of human touch had been completely lost on this man. And Jesus doesn't want to just speak a word. He wants to put his hand on him and say, I will be clean. Friends, I don't know what you think of Christianity or what you think of Jesus, but Jesus loves to touch that which we would say is dirty. He loves to touch that which is broken. He loves to touch that which is, which is not as it should be and bring the power of his healing mercy and grace into that situation. Like we've developed this weird phrase that got popular within the church where people will say, God can't stand the presence of sin. That's false. Sin cannot stand the presence of God. God has no problem leaving the place of heaven to come to this broken world. He actually loves to be around the broken because it's not what he intended. He loves to step towards those who are sick and bring healing. He loves to, to, to put his hand on dysfunction and bring the power of his forgiving mercy. This is what Jesus is all about. 
Friends, God came to redeem people. And so I don't know what you're carrying in the room, but I know that God is not doing this with you. I know that today he's actually trying to break in. He's actually trying to put his hand on you. He's trying to touch what's off and what's broken because he wants to bring healing to whatever it is that's broken. One of the first sermons that Jesus preaches in another synagogue recorded by Luke chapter four says this. The, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. Paint this story in your head. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to push back the darkness of this world through his teaching, through his deliverance, and through his healing. And I don't know what it is that you're carrying today, but this is the good news, that the king has arrived, and he is sabotaging the kingdom of darkness that exists in the world. And there's darkness that you have today that the king of kings wants to invade with his healing power. This is what Mark is trying to get us to see. So where do we go from here? How does Jesus do all of this? Well, I'll close with this. There's something that happens to the leper that I think we forget or miss when we read the story that is really significant if you're gonna understand the whole point of the gospel. Mark 1, verse 43 says this. Right after Jesus heals the leper, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He's saying, hey, I healed you. Don't say a word about that. Now you would think, well, doesn't Jesus want the word to get out? Like, hey, I'm here. Go tell everybody. Well, he's actually not wanting to prematurely allow the kingdom to, to come because a lot of the vision that they had for who he was as king and what they, their messianic anticipations were way, way, way off. So Jesus is wanting people to come to him for the right reasons. He says, don't tell anybody about what I'm doing. Now notice what happens. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The guy totally disobeys Jesus. Jesus is like, don't tell anyone. He's like, gotcha, I'm gonna go tell everybody right? Which, you know, some pastors have preached this and like, how admirable. It's like, no, you disobeyed Jesus. That's not admirable. You did the wrong thing, right? Now, Jesus is forced out into desolate places and he can't enter the town. Does that sound like anybody to you? Yeah, it sounds like the leper because the leper who is forced to live in desolate places, not allowed in the town, has now traded places with Jesus because of his grace and mercy. One Uh, one scholar says it this way, Mark began the story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. And at the end of the story, Jesus is outside in lonely places. Jesus and the leper have traded places. Friends, do you wanna know what Christianity is all about? It's about God in Christ trading places with us. He did not deserve to die for sin, but on the cross, he takes it on our behalf. He, it says, according to Isaiah 53, was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus died outside the camp 
so that you and I could be brought in to the presence of God. We did not deserve to be brought in, but because Jesus was cast out and died the death that we deserve to die, we get to be brought in and experience healing and deliverance and his teaching and life in the kingdom. This is the grace of God and the gospel. Jesus has traded places with us. I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? Here in just a second, we're going to take communion. If you want, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple, you're orienting your life around the person and work and teachings of Jesus, then you can go ahead and grab that cup. It has a little cracker in it and some juice. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we are so glad you're here. We've been praying for you all week. We actually want you to come to Jesus today. So this, this communion is for disciples. If you're not yet a disciple, then just pass on it. It's not weird. It's actually weird if you take it because this is a sacred meal for Christians. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a second and just close your eyes. I don't know what you're carrying today, but I would imagine that if you're anything like me, there's various types of darkness in your heart that you need God with his grace and mercy to invade. Maybe it's the darkness of a struggle in marriage, feels like you guys are going backwards and you're at the place to where if things continue as it is, there's no repair. Maybe it's the struggle with singleness and you're really wrestling with contentment in, in Jesus. Maybe it's a certain particular sin that has just cropped back up. You thought you had victory and you don't and it's just eating your lunch. You can't seem to to break free. Maybe it's an identity crisis, wrestling with who you are, wrestling with what to do. I, I don't know what it is. Hey, maybe, maybe it's actually physically you're sick. Physically. Like you've got a diagnosis from a doctor, or you've got something going on in your body that isn't the way that God intended things to be and you're wrestling with that. Hey, friends, I want you to know that God wants to invade the darkness today. So whatever the darkness is, if you have that and you're saying, I need God to invade the darkness today, would you just raise your hand so that I could see you and pray for you? No one's looking around. No one's going to judge you. I've got darkness in my heart today that I'm asking God to invade. Just as an act of faith saying, God, I, here I am. Meet me in my darkness. Would you raise your hand? Father, I pray for my friends all across the room. I don't know how you want to do it, but I pray today that by your power, you would invade the darkness in our life. We pray, God, where there's demonic stuff that we've actually just chalked up to mental illness or we've chalked up to our inability to cope with past childhood wounds or we've chalked up to just greed or whatever. God, we pray that would you break the power of the enemy in our life? God, where there is marital unhealth and struggle and strife, would you come in your power and bring freedom and deliverance? God, where there's, where there's brokenness regarding sexual sin, God, would you bring freedom and healing today? Healing, God, where, where there's physical sickness in the room, I pray that you would touch my friends with your love and with your power. In Jesus' name.